Film fans, did you miss us? It's the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. And yes, we are back. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined today by Evan Dean. Uh, and Evan, I don't think we intended to have this long a break between podcasts. It's been 26 days, uh, but the distractions are abound this yeah. time of year, apparently. Uh, how the hell are you? Good, man. I've just, uh, I've been, yeah, busy lately. Um, obviously busy with what I'm normally busy with, um, work and life, but, uh, you know, college basketball has obviously been a big thing that's commanded our free time. Yeah, March Madness, big basketball fans over here. We've got Michigan State and Michigan both still in it, along with an, yeah. uh, a bunch of other heavyweights. Uh, that stuff starts up again tomorrow, so I'm glad we're here doing the doing this now. Uh, I've also got a wedding coming up next month, so I've been right. feverishly planning that. Oh, yeah, the wedding. Yeah, we have March Madness. Oh, yeah, I'm getting married, too. Sorry um, I brought that up second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and then coupled with the relative slow time at the theater, yeah. um, you know, I, I think we've been away a little bit. Not on purpose, but you know what? Life happens. Anyways, we're excited to be back today. Um, coming up on today's show, uh, I'll be sharing my thoughts on a TV series I've been watching. Uh, after that, we're going to introduce a new segment that I think our listeners will like. That's uh, sort of a, an amalgamation of sports and movies, sort of our two of our loves, at least here on the podcast. Yeah. And that's all going to lead up to our featured review today. It's the 21st film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, this time an origin story. Uh, it's Captain Marvel. So um, all that coming up, big show. Um, but before we do that, we always want to tell you how to get in touch with us. It's been 26 days. We've been away. We've missed days. you. Wow. We want to show you. We want to see you. We want to hear from you. Yeah. Um, so let's remind them how to do that real quick. Yeah, obviously our uh, our biggest uh, way to connect is on Facebook. You can go to our page, Second Day Film Podcast. Give it a like. You can follow us on Twitter, at Second Day Film. Also on Instagram, we've also got an email, secondayfilm at gmail.com. That's how you connect with us. But how you actually listen, you can go to iTunes, and then you can also go to SoundCloud. We've got the pod up on both of those. And you can go back and listen to old episodes, too. I get a kick sometimes when I've got nothing else to listen to on a car ride. Pull up an episode from, like nine months ago and just enjoy it you know yeah. remind myself of the whatever nonsense we were talking about yeah. nine of, months ago of how dreadful we were at podcasting no no, no, no actually no. They're, they're okay you, you just want to hear the the sultry dulcet sounds the the soothing voice of sam the popcorn yes. correspondent yeah we missed that guy man yeah. gotta get him back on a pod soon yeah, he keeps talking about it so i'm not gonna make any promises because with sam you don't want to make promises sometimes um but we hope to get the popcorn correspondent Back on the pot at least sometime here in 2019. You know, it's only March. Uh, I guess it's almost April, but I think we can do that. So. I think so too. Maybe when Super Troopers Three comes out, he'll make a guest oh, visit. Oh yeah. Well, I saw him. Uh, I saw him commenting about uh, the Lion King Toy Story Four trailer came out the other day, um, and I saw him and his girlfriend commenting on it, saying we have to go see this. So I know he's still watching movies. I know he's still into it. So yeah, we'll just have to get him back on the pod because uh, I think we miss his touch sometimes. I think so too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of good stuff coming out soon. You know, we talked about the dry spell, uh, but we've got 
got some good movies coming out over the course of the next month or two months or even the summer, especially with Disney. So it'll be something that we'll definitely have to watch. Yeah. Also, Jordan Peele's Us is yeah. something that I really want to see soon. And speaking of Jordan Peele, I just put this on the Facebook page at Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, did you see his Twilight Zone series, his reboot of the Twilight Zone? It's going to be on CBS All Access, which is like a streaming service that I feel like about 12 people have. Um, but but uh, I really want to watch that. I love the old Twilight Zone. You're a, you're a horror suspense guy. Are you interested in watching that? I am interested in watching it. I am not a huge Twilight Zone fan. I never really got into it. It's obviously really old school, really old fashioned. Um, but yeah, I, I heard about that. I'm excited. Uh, and I wonder if maybe that's the hope for CBS All Access is that that kind of show will pull some of their, you know, their numbers up. Because, yeah, I, I don't, as far as streaming services go, they're not up there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will. Jordan Peele, obviously a big name yeah. with uh, uh, The Twilight Zone and also Us. I put that trailer on the Facebook page if you want to go check it out. That's at Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, anyways, moving on, I'm going to quickly talk about a, uh, a series that I've been watching. Um, it's called The Marvelous Miss Maisel. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. If you pay attention to uh, movies and whatnot, I'm sure you've you've heard of this show. I believe it won the Golden Globe and the Emmy, or at least the Emmy, one of the two this year for Best Drama Series. Um, the plot summary on IMDb, a housewife in the 1950s decides to become a stand-up comic. Um, this show stars Rachel Brosnahan as the main character, Miriam Midge Maisel. Uh, supporting roles are held by Alex Borstein, uh, Michael Zagan, Marin Hinkle, Tony Shalhoub, and Kevin Pollack. Alex Borstein, I recognize as the voice of uh, um, uh, in, in Family Guy. Why am I? Lois, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny when you watch the show that you kind of hear Lois pipe up every once in a while. Mm -hmm. So that's always a little bit amusing. Um, this show's created by Amy Sherman Palladino, um, who is best known for creating the show Gilmore Girls. Um, and, and you can really see those influences in this show. Um, I'm not an avid Gilmore Girls watcher, uh, but my fiance is, so I've seen it on before. Um, and I know sort of what the best part about that show is, is sort of the, the quick, witty, clever script with the main characters kind of bickering and jabbing and countering back and forth and uh, cracking one-liners. I know that's, and you can really see that. That's very much in this show as well. Um, Rachel Brosnahan, who I had seen in uh, House of Cards in a small supporting role. Yeah. Um, I believe she plays like the hooker. She, that, she was yeah. awesome in that. Yeah. It didn't end well for her, but that, you know, yeah. it's another no, spoiler story. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, but uh, she has a small, <laughs> she's amazing in this. Yeah. Um, she has such confidence and class. She's like super dignified and just exudes girl power in a show that takes place in a time when being a girl often meant being in the kitchen, being a secretary. Or working in the basement of a department store as an operator. So uh, I think the way that Rachel Brosnahan is able to bring life, this confidence to Midge, um, is sort of like, is really awesome to see in this show. Yeah, I, I've heard just a ton of good things. And, you know, she's been sweeping the comedy or musical series, right? She won the uh, Primetime Emmy in 2018. For, for Best Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. She then she also won the Golden Globe the same year. And she just won the Golden Globe for 2019 and will probably win the Emmy again for 2019. So she has been, I mean, this this show killed it. It won, what, I, it looks like one, two, three, four, maybe like seven or eight Emmys last yeah. year. So Yeah, so I'm, I'm not alone here talking about, yeah, you know, no. the, the, this show, it comes with a lot of pedigree. And honestly, I'm late to the party watching this show. A lot of people have been talking about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I posted a quick little review on Facebook and I had about four or five people chime in like, 
oh, the show's so great. Oh, it's our new favorite show. We watched this as a couple together, and we're just loving it. And I have to agree. Outside of the performances, and it even goes beyond Midge, Tony Shalhoub is her dad, is amazing. Borstein is awesome. There's lots of even people that I didn't mention, the comics and these people that just bring 1950s New York to life um, that are just sort of like these characters within show business in 1950 that really give the show sort of like a grounded feel. And the world building itself of 1950s New York and later places like Paris or the Catskill Mountains, um, it's brought to life beautifully. Um, there's all this incredible 1950s music that is so obviously 1950s music. Hmm. It just sort of transports you to the time. Um, the wardrobe, especially Midge's, she's a character who has money um, and, and sort of lives in this penthouse in, in, in the Upper West Side of New York. And her wardrobe is almost like a character all in itself. It's, it's colorful, it's ritzy, it's classic styles. She And I love that Midge is like, she's this independent woman who's trying to become a comic, but at the same time, she still fits within the construct of a 1950s housewife. She still has certain values where she would be, act this way because it's 1950s. It's just different than it is now. So I like that they don't completely make her unbelievable like she's this crazy renegade, you know, Rosie the Riveter girl. It's actually a believable person who would live in a normal time. Um, the comedy itself isn't, laugh out loud funny i'd say but it we have to remember it's supposed to be 1950s humor so maybe it's a little bit outdated and when i say the comedy itself isn't funny i mean like when she's actually doing stand-up the actual trading jabs and dialogue within the show is hilarious um but but the actual stand-up i think is just outdated which makes sense but i think the real reason i love the show is because you just like the characters they're all very likable but flawed people um, who are just trying to live together and do what they think is right for them and their family. Um, so they're characters you root for, and I think that's important in a show, because there's a lot of shows these days where you're like, I hate the main characters. I want something bad to happen to them. So um, I think that's what... And beyond that, the show just makes the 1950s look like the greatest time period ever. It looks like a lot of fun. And I know that probably uh, wasn't the case. It's probably not that much better than now. It probably had its own problems. But it makes me want to go there and hang out for a while. And I have fun watching the show. So for that reason, I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. Wow. I love right. The Marvelous Miss Maisel. All right. That's huge. Yeah. Um, I'm right there with you, though. I think, you know, regardless of the influence of a show, I've always thought it'd be fun to go back into a time period and just live there for a week. Mm-hmm. And the 50s is an interesting time. It was a time of, of really... Um, post World War II, yeah, well, you know, sophistication. People wore, you know, suits. There was the music. People mm-hmm. danced. I mean, it was, yeah, it, it's a, it's a really uh, cool, interesting era. And, and and I haven't seen the show. Um, it's it's basically become uh, Amazon Prime's like flagship original show for Prime Video. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I, that and Man in the High Castle, I'd say, are the two. Okay, that yeah. Sort of- uh, but this one, uh, it sounds like might be a good one to watch with my wife. Yeah, no, she'd love it. She would yeah. She would love the shit out of this show. I mean, she, like I talk about, the, she'll mention the wardrobe, she'll mention the music. I, I almost guarantee it. And, and I just thought about this when you mentioned, you know, the lifestyle. There's just something so simple and wonderful about watching people sit in a a room 
with no phones, yeah. no distractions, and just listening to someone perform. Like, I feel like, I mean, we obviously do that now, but it just feels so much more pure back then when they didn't even have the temptation to pick out their phone. So I think that's almost part of the reason why I enjoy watching the show, too, is it, it's sort of like a throwback and transports you to an era that isn't here anymore. Yeah. So I think that it does that really well. So I would highly recommend All checking right. out The Marvelous Miss Maisel on Amazon Prime. All right, moving on, we're going to introduce a new segment right now. I know it's been a while since we've sort of uh, visited one of our segments. I know that was kind of like one of our founding pillars of the podcast, but there's been so many movies coming out lately. Uh, we've kind of gotten caught in the habit of uh, just reviewing new films. Um, so me and Evan were both sitting down and we're thinking, hey, I think we should probably bring back a segment. Remember that old segment we were talking about that we never introduced? <laughs> um, and we're, gonna call, we're calling this segment, What If I Told You? Um, and it's basically a play on... Uh, ESPN 30 for 30. It's uh, They had an ad campaign where What If I Told You was the main tagline. If you haven't heard of ESPN 30 for 30, you probably have if you watch movies because it's been around since 2009. Um, but ESPN Films 30 for 30 is an unprecedented documenting, documentary series featuring today's finest storytellers from inside and outside the sports world. Basically, you get legit filmmakers to pick a topic they're passionate about within the sports world, and they make a documentary about it that airs on ESPN. So me and Evan are both, um, if, you, if you haven't caught on so far, uh, we love sports just about as much as we love film. Um, this is a series that I've absolutely loved since it ever came out, obviously, because it's a combination of two things that I love, sports and movies. Um, I've said before, I think what the 30 for 30 series in general does really, really well is shine a spotlight on an isolated incident or an isolated topic and sort of hit it from all angles, uh, you know, interview everyone involved, whether it's a, a Hall of Fame player at the center of it or the janitor that spoke to that person one time. They really sort of just bring you into a specific moment in time. Um, so that's what we're going to try and do with this. Yeah. We decided that we would go through the filmography um, periodically. There's been a lot of these films now um, and just sort of analyze it, review it, analyze it, talk about it. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind the What If I Told You segment. Um, today we're going to be talking about King's Ransom, which was the first one uh, that aired on October 6th, 2009. Yeah. Um, Peter Berg's documentary on Wayne Gretzky, his decision to leave Edmonton for Los Angeles, and that decision's effects on hockey and its fans. So, Evan, before we get into the specific episode here, um, what's sort of your experience with the 30 for 30? Are these things that you've watched before? Yeah, or? oh yeah, I've seen a, a several, several 30 for 30s. And um, <clears throat> what I've found is that, um, you know, my level of interest and my level of captivation and intrigue really varies depending on the content of the, that particular documentary, um, the sport that's featured in that particular documentary, and also... Um, just once I've seen it, you know, the level of, of effort, if you will, or maybe time or money, the production value, it's kind of a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Um, you have some films that you can tell there was a little bit, maybe a little bit more of a production value, a little bit more time and money. And there are others where, um, you know, like run Ricky run where, you know, the, the, the documentary filmmaker just had unprecedented access, but it's very cheaply put together so i there's not consistency no. like you're not going to get the same runtime you're not going to get the same level of filmmaking mm -hmm. and because of that i think to some degree wh when you're watching it you have to judge it by its filmmaking but also just by the content and what is a sports fan you think about 
what you've seen. Right. And thus is sort of the nature of documentary yeah. film, I guess, in a way. You know, yeah. a lot of times documentary films aren't that funded very well, but because the subject matter is so interesting, people are into it or it wins awards and whatnot. Um, so that's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, the series in general, I, I think, is great. I love it. Yeah. Um, and I think with the, our idea with this What If I Told You segment is to sort of just go through it in chronological order and try and get rid of those biases of, of you know, sports and interest and, and yeah. actually watch some, maybe some of them that we haven't seen. Like I said, we've both seen a handful. So, um, anyways, King's Ransom, I said this is the first one, uh, directed by Peter Berg, who's one of my favorite directors, actually. Uh, he's known for films like Mile 22, Patriot's Day, Deepwater Horizon, Lone Survivor, Friday Night Lights. You'll so, also recognize him. He's yeah. acted quite a bit. Too. Yeah, yeah, he's an actor as well. And I should mention that when you say recognize, all these 30 for 30s, if you watch them on box sets or on uh, ESPN Plus, has the entire library um, now where you can watch them streaming. And they always have these director interviews in the beginning and the end, which I always find very interesting because it sort of brings insight into why that director chose that subject matter or why they're interested in telling this story. Because these are mainstream A-list directors a lot of times. I mean, Peter Berg, I just listed off his filmography. Yeah. Those are very popular films. So um, this one about Wayne Gretzky. I thought it was interesting that we started with a hockey one. ESPN's introing a, a new series back in 2009, and they lead off with a hockey story, which I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, ESPN doesn't carry hockey. They don't care about hockey. And they decided to launch this film <laughs> right. enterprise that is still around with a hockey story about Wayne Gretzky. So what, when you when you watch King's Ransom, what do you what pops to your mind? What are your sort of original thoughts about it? Yeah, well, I, I want to give us a little bit of context first, not only about the film, but about us. You and I, lifelong hockey players. It was the sport I played since I was a kid. About eight um, years old, right? Yeah, exactly. You and I played on mites together when we were seven years old. Well, I was um, the center, in yeah, case anyone was wondering. Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, so anyway. <laughs> didn't even but, know that I was the one who had to take the face off. Exactly. <laughs> we didn't even know what we were doing then. You couldn't even stand up. So we're lifelong hockey players. Um, and most people aren't. There's not as much context behind the sport. So I just want to just give a little bit of context um, behind Wayne Gretzky. He, there are four players in there are in four times in the NHL as a player scored more than 200 points in a season. All four of them are by Wayne Gretzky. He's widely considered, and I think most average sports fans know, he's widely considered the greatest hockey player of all time who played in the 80s, which in the NHL was this absurd level of insane scoring. Um, so he's he is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of points above anybody else on career stats. This I mean, is an example. Wayne Gretzky is the all-time assists leader in the NHL history. He has 1,963. Second place is Ron Francis with 1,249. Exactly. And so. it was before the goalie pads improved. There's a lot of reasons for that, but he was the king at a point when hockey was at its peak. And Literally. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but imagine... Um, maybe if you're not a hockey fan, imagine Michael Jordan after winning his first three titles with yeah, the Bulls exactly. and then trading him to another team. Right. I think most people know who Wayne Gretzky is, even if they're not a hockey True, fan. Yeah, yeah. But my memories of Wayne Gretzky as a player, even as a hockey fan, this is in the 80s, they're very vague. I don't remember him. I remember him when he was older playing for the Blues. And, yeah, you know, we were, yeah, yeah. this so, trade happened the year before I was born. Right. So I don't remember Gretzky in his prime outside of highlights. And that's one thing I really appreciated about the start of this documentary yeah. is, um, you know, 
the random flashbacks to Oilers games when when Gretzky's walking around the dimly lit, empty, iceless arena, yeah. and you can literally hear the white noise in the background. But as he's doing that, Berg is flashing in all these crazy highlights of Wayne Gretzky and all these the, the euphoria around him in Edmonton. And I think that that was a great way to start it out. It really gave us insight into hit this godlike figure in Western yeah. Canada. Yeah, he was. He was a god. And um, what I think is interesting, um, you know, about the decision to trade him is this film showcases the absurd level to which a single team and a single player can have an impact on people's lives. The the owner of the, the Oilers who made the decision ultimately to trade Wayne Gretzky. Peter Pocklington. Yeah, he was receiving <clears throat> death threats. They were, you know, Edmonton, people in Edmonton were out in the streets, you know, with, with you know, dolls of Peter Pocklington, you know, hung by a noose. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, what a, a player and a team means to a sports uh, fan base and then what it means to be betrayed, uh, this film showed it exquisitely. Yeah, and also the juxtaposition of Edmonton and Los Angeles, yeah. like... Um, it really helps people understand that hockey is life in it. Life in it. Edmonton. Oh, yeah. I can't talk right now. Um, they compare them to the Green Bay Packers. You know, it's just, whereas it's just another thing happening in L.A. when the Kings are playing, and especially before Gretzky got there. It's not an event. In Edmonton, every game, like I think they mentioned, t- fans were playing $5,000 for tickets to go to an Edmonton yeah. Oilers game when Messier and Gretzky and all these guys are there. So the film does a great job sort of showing... Um, you know, the difference between hockey in Edmonton and L.A. and how Wayne Gretzky's influence sort of changes things in yeah. California. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Pocklington. Um, I think the, the, the movie does a great job showing how the deal actually came together. Um, you know, we see trades in sports all the time, um, but we don't get to see the inner workings like this. And obviously this is after the fact, but we have uh, Bruce McNall from the Kings. We have Pocklington. We have the coach. Uh, Glenn Sather, we have Gretzky himself being interviewed. Yeah. Um, you know, so we really get all angles of what actually was going on around this. Um, you, you even know, get situation. Gretzky's wife, who's an, right. an actress, right? In Hollywood. People demonized for saying he you stole him, this harlot, <laughs> yeah. stole our Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we play fantasy sports. We just had a baseball draft last night, and you know, we wheel and deal players like it's a big deal. But this this documentary really makes you realize that, like. There's guys who are doing this with real people in real lives, and I felt like just the insight into the actual deal was really cool. I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, just the access. Obviously, you interview everybody involved. You interview the owner of the Kings, the owner of of the Oilers, and Wayne himself, coaches. You know, it's obviously great access, as you would want and and hope for. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, again, it's the best player Ever at his prime. I mean, this this was a, a deal that sent shockwaves uh, to you know to the NHL community, the sports world, and um, I think it's interesting because watching it today, I I thought of some parallels between what we see in sports now. So any NFL fan knows there are certain players like Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, who have kind of done spurned their best chances at a championship for more money 
more notoriety and more fame themselves. Yeah. And and that's what Gretzky ultimately does here. He 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 has so much pride and such an ego and he admits it mm-hmm. that just the thought that they would trade him, he was pissed. Right, because they gave him a chance, as we find out in the documentary, they give him a chance to stop the trade. Yeah. And he admits to Peter Berg as they're playing golf, I was mad they were trying to trade him. Yeah. So I went. You know, I, I really do think, you know, the anger that fans had in blaming this owner but I, Wayne Gretzky uh, pulled a LeBron before LeBron ever pulled a LeBron. Yeah. He wanted to go. He wanted out of Edmonton. He was married. He was married to the the actress wife. He wanted the lights. He says, "I love living in LA. I would never change anything." So I think in hindsight, fans need to realize like how it is. That being said, uh, you know I love the quote that the Oilers coach says. Uh, he says. Uh, well, Bruce McNall first is like, I couldn't even believe it when Pocknington called him and said, we're going to trade him. And then Glenn Sather, the coach, goes, Wayne was sold for $15 million, five draft picks, and a couple players. And I wouldn't have traded him for an entire organization. And he's the coach. He wants Wayne Gretzky on his team. Yeah. Of course he's going to say that. Um, but but ultimately, I think it was Wayne's decision. He wanted out of Edmonton, and whether it was pride or whatever, but the documentary does a great job of showing us that. Yeah. Getting his insight. So I really appreciated this sort of glimpse behind the curtain, I will if you could say. Yeah. And then the second half of the documentary really focuses on how Wayne influenced hockey in the in the American West, which is obviously not the hotbed. No. Um, but once he gets to LA, you know, all the tickets being sold, whatever, specifically in California, which of course has added the Anaheim Ducks and the San Jose Sharks in years since since he was traded there. Um so going big picture after they analyze the trade, they really show what how Wayne Gretzky grew hockey in general. And he does say that as well as he felt a bigger responsibility than just himself. He felt that pressure to sort of grow the game in areas that it wasn't maybe like the highlight of the day. Yeah, and I think that uh, that's an interesting part because they ask him, I think one of the very last lines is, is you know, talking about Wayne you know, saying he wouldn't, trade it he if if he would you know if if it were to happen all again he would say i'd do it all again Mm -hmm. and that's interesting because you know as sports fans we oftentimes quantify things in championships and he won four in edmonton Mm -hmm. they won one after he left he had a chance to win a whole bunch he didn't do anything in terms of championships with the kings in terms of the success of his team and his career as a as a team not an individual but a team it was a horrible decision on his part, but well, doesn't didn't the Kings make the Stanley Cup one year? They did. They, they made that? it one year, but they yeah. didn't win any cups. Yeah. Edmonton even won one after, a couple it. years after he'd left. So, in terms of team success and championship winning, it was a horrible decision. But as as he shows us in this, there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. And we so often view it as sports fans is. You know, with Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown, why you're leaving this great team for this terrible team? And sometimes it's money. Oftentimes it's money, as it was with Wayne. Uh, oftentimes it's pride, as it was with Wayne. But for him, it was also about growing the sport. And I do think he did achieve that. And that's oh, yeah. why it wasn't a regret for him. Some of the most rabid fans in hockey are in California. The Sharks have a great fan base. Yeah. The Kings when they're winning, have a great fan base. But that's L.A. in general. They yeah. don't pay attention unless you're winning. Yeah. So two questions I have for you real quick. Have the Oilers ever recovered from this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. Um, they've uh, they've been really a bad franchise for a long, long, long time. Um, I'd actually have to check the stats. I know that they 
over the past decade or so, they've been one of the worst. Uh-huh. They have Connor McDavid, who people parallel to Gretzky because they play for the same organization. And 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 you know McDavid's one of the the best. But I don't think that's fair to Connor McDavid. There's not going to be another Gretzky. Probably not. No, but but I do think though that. When you ask that, I mean, they haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1990. If you're, if you're, if that's how you're qualifying success, no, it's been, you know, since this all went down, um, they did win one after him, but haven't had much success. Right, especially recently. And the other question I have is, why is Wayne Gretzky's dad using a knife to scoop up dandelions? Doesn't he have a lawnmower? (laughs) That was the only other. That's great. I do have one question for you though. Okay. Okay. Are you not going to answer that one? I don't know the answer to that, but I do <laughs> want to. Think Wayne enter- could have brought him a lawnmower with all yeah. that money he's making in L.A. That's know? that's true. <laughs> okay, Edmonton has won one conference championship since 1990. They've been really bad. Mm. Um, here's what I want to know: You don't hear about players being traded for cash mm. hardly at all anymore. Um, if Edmonton was such an amazing team, but won four cups, had an incredible sold-out fan base, why did they need the 15 million? Yeah, I, I was wondering that too because Peter Pocklington, when he's interviewed, he talks a lot about economic pressures and stuff like that. I don't know if that's from the city, maybe with the arena. They did get a new arena in years after that. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what he's talking about. Edmonton is not a big market, Mm-mm. so maybe he that's part of it. So it was 1980s, who knows, not as much money floating around. I, I Clearly, as Glenn Sather says... They sold Wayne Gretzky. They did not do it for the right reasons in his eyes. So, um, And Peter Pocklington admits as much. He says, I don't blame him for being mad. So, anyways, that's King's Ransom. That's the first 30 for 30 um, that was premiered by uh, ESPN back in 2009. Um, So, yeah, those are our thoughts on it. If you're a hockey fan, definitely check it out. Even if you're a sports fan, I think it's really interesting just because of the access. I think this is one of the cases where access is great. Although this one has some pretty good production value, too. I mentioned some of the the cutting, the clever editing in the beginning. So check it out. That's King's Ransom. All right, next we're going to move on to our featured review. It is the highly anticipated live-action debut of the Marvel character, Captain Marvel. Um, and before we get into this, I just want to say there will be full spoilers ahead or possible spoilers ahead um, as we get into and talk about this movie. Um, so if you haven't seen it, maybe uh, check out, go watch it, then come back. Um, as I said, Captain Marvel, this is the 21st movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the um, the first since Avengers, right? No, we, had, uh, we did have uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. So yeah. the first one so far this year, it's the first of three planned Marvel Cinematic Universe movies this year. This film is written and directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. The plot summer in IMDb. Carol Danvers becomes one of the universe's most powerful heroes when Earth is caught in the middle of a galactic war between two alien races. This movie stars Brie Larson as Carol Danvers alongside Samuel L. Jackson reprising his role as Nick Fury, Ben Mendelsohn, Dijvan Hansu, Lee Pace, Lashana Lynch, Gemma Chan, Annette Bening, Clark Gregg, and Jude Law. Um, so, a couple things I want to touch on before I toss it to you to talk about this film in particular. Um, first of all, before the film even starts, we see the, the Marvel Studios logo that is uh, usually filled with the Avengers and all the, the Marvel heroes. And this time it was filled with all Stan Lee. Um, of course, this is the first film since his death in November of last year, um, and I think that was really cool, because really, he's the ultimate hero of this series. Uh, without him, many of these characters wouldn't even exist, so I thought that was a really cool tribute 
in sort of homage to, to Stan Lee just to kick things off right away. And secondly, I was really excited to see this movie, first because I was interested to see what they're going to do with Captain Marvel, but because of Avengers Infinity War before, I was wondering if we were going to get any clues into that, and of course Endgame, which is coming out in April, just a month from now. So I wanted to see if we were going to get any insight into sort of what was going to happen, which we did, um, but we'll get to that a little later. So those were sort of my my uh, thoughts when I was coming in. I was like really excited to see it, just because it was a continuation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And also Captain Marvel is definitely secondary, maybe even tertiary character in the Marvel comic universe. Um, so I was interested to see how they were going to make this character interesting in a different way than the other ones. So um, those were sort of my thoughts coming in, but what are what were sort of your initial impressions about Captain Marvel? You know, Marvel? Stan Lee makes a cameo, right? Oh, yeah, of course. He's in the movie, yes. Yeah. Like all Marvel movies, yeah. So obviously, <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's cool to see him because this was before his death. It's presumably the last time he's going to make an appearance in a film unless he... Well, they have talked about finding ways to get him in movies, um, whether it's using special effects yeah. or mm. archive footage or... There's ways they can do it, so they have talked about that, but we'll we'll see if that happens. But yeah, cool to see him for sure. Yeah, so should I start with what I liked or what I didn't like? Um, Whatever you want to do, man. What, what do you feel like is the first thing that you need to talk about? Well, the first... The way the film starts is in outer space. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I thought that I wasn't particularly impressed um, with with the scenes, the characters, the aliens in outer space. I do, I'll go back to that. They throw a lot at you. They do. Uh, and it was a lot, and uh, I wasn't blown away by it. What I, where I will go is where I first really started to enjoy this film, and that was when uh, Carol Danvers, or Veers, gets to Earth. Um we don't, you know, it's another one of those classic Marvel, you know, someone in an unfamiliar place. We've seen Thor on Earth, unfamiliar place. We've seen humans in space, an unfamiliar place. In this case, it's Carol Danvers in an unfamiliar place on Earth, but rediscovering who she is because that's where she's from. So it was interesting. But um, what I really liked is they didn't tell you exactly when this took place, uh, but... We got some hints right away, and yeah. and they just she falls into onto Earth in a blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. So I loved that. I like LOL'd in my head because I'm like, all right, we know this is not happening in in you know in real time. Well, they they do a lot of that with the 1995 is where it's set. Yeah, and they do that through the music they're listening to. There's like TLC and mid 90s R and B playing in the background. There's the the slow internet connection. Oh, I love stuff that. There that was they an, make jokes there about. There was an internet cafe. She's wearing a nine inch nails <laughs> yeah. t shirt. Yeah. I really the enjoyed. Phones, yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that. And again, they didn't hit it over your head uh, and say this is when it is, but you figured it out pretty quickly. Well, some of the the outdated technology aspect was how they created some of the best humor in the movie. I think. Yeah, you know, uh, the one that I just brought up is when they're they're trying to watch the old uh, black box tape and they just you know they're waiting for it to load and they cut to the alien and it's like what the hell it's taking forever yeah. it's just like you know funny just funny yeah. clever humor like that the humor i thought was hit or miss for the most part but the the stuff about technology jokes and being outdated between the alien races and the humans i thought hit for the most part nick fury has some good wisecracks and whatnot so yeah i, I agree that the, the setting of 1995 sort of helped give it sort of a unique feel you know, and maybe separate it from other Marvel movies. That's exactly it. Because when we get started, 
you know, for me, I'm just thinking, oh boy, it's, it feels like a Thor or a Guardians yeah. rehash. I'm like, I do not want to spend this whole movie in space. Mm-hmm. Once we get to 1995 Earth, again, that's really when it started to pick up. And uh, part of, you know, part of what I enjoyed about it taking place in 1995 is this is like the start of S.H.I.E.L.D. And we've got a Nick Fury with two eyes for most of the film. <laughs> um, and uh, it was really cool to see him and to see... Uh, you know, him is an early on character. I thought that Phil Coulson uh, too. I thought Phil Coulson was great to see him. I thought that alive uh, and kicking again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that was cool. Right. We've been brought to a certain place in the Marvel cinematic universe and we're kind of brought back in time with this film. And I enjoyed that. Do you think that's, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you think that's going to be sort of a way that Marvel just goes forward with these movies, uh, in the future? I think that maybe that's a storytelling device they might revisit, you know, just filling in the timeline before the big Avengers thing. It seems like something they could go back to. Maybe. Messing with the timeline. So. Maybe, but then what they have to do is they have to have some explanation for why, in this case, Captain Marvel has been gone for 20-some years. Right. Um, and why she's suddenly reappearing now that, you know, um, you know, half the Earth's population is gone. But anyway, what I also liked about this is I thought that Nick Fury and Carol Danvers... Veers, Vers, um, I thought they had a, they were a good pair. Um, Brie Larson uh, is just, she's an incredible actress. Um, Room, she won the Academy Award for Best Actress in, and she was brilliant. This film requires much less acting <laughs> than, than that, but I thought she was good. You know, she did a good job of portraying a kind of uh, tough, uh, hard-nosed, uh, no-nonsense girl who kind of kicked ass and the film, a lot of it is about her finding her identity. Oh yeah, I, I think she's. I like her for the most part. I think she's best when she's being the sort of cocky, witty, you know, character more so than the early space scenes when she thinks she's a Cree. I wasn't buying it at the start. It got a lot better when she got to Earth. Yeah, and maybe some of that was, uh, you know, on purpose. You know, because she is actually human after all. So maybe she should be more believable in that capacity. I agree. In addition to having a Captain Marvel origin story here, we basically have a Nick Fury origin story. We find out that he loses an eye because he gets scratched by a, a cat slash octopus thing. I don't know. <laughs> remember exactly what they called it. Not you know. Was it a fluke? Or yeah. Not mis- not mishandling that? the Tesseract. So that's kind of like a a shot to uh, Nick Fury's origin story there. Somehow they make Samuel Jackson look like he's about twenty four years old. Well, I don't know how they do this. Um, but it was an expected bonus. It was an, an unexpected bonus, I'll say, an added bonus to sort of get to see a young, green um, Nick Fury in this movie as well. And I agree their interplay is pretty good. Um, you mentioned a lot of the movie being about um, Brie Larson trying to find out who she is and, and how she is as a person. She's a female superhero, and that's cool to see in itself because we haven't had a lot of that. We've had Wonder Woman... You know, obviously, like, Black Widow has been a, a mainstay in the Avengers series. Um, but but I think this is the first superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that really, truly embodies uh, empowerment. And, like, being a woman and be, being powerful as a woman. You know, she's she's this badass chick. Um, and and she's a superhero. She becomes a superhero because of her encounter with, with the Kree and the, the life source. But she's a badass even before that happens. You know, she she's driving go-karts with the boys, and she's riding her bike with the boys, and she's a pilot, for crying out loud. So, yeah, she has the blast that sort of gives her this power, but up until the end of the movie, she doesn't know how to harness it. She's harnessing it with the power of the Kree, 
Um, and by the end of the movie, she she realizes that she can do it herself. She doesn't need the crazy. So she sort of becomes fully who she is and embraces, you know, this hero lifestyle. But I don't know if she would have been able to do that if she wasn't already a badass chick as a human. So I think there's a lot of good messages in this that sort of is, you know, going to empower young women all over the place. Well, yeah. you know? And that we need that. You know? Absolutely. I think that... Um that's a good point, and that was kind of how I was going to wrap it, because I think that there's film is good, but it also has some major flaws, things I didn't like. But I think at the end of the day, um, that was my takeaway, is that, look, this is the first feature film to feature a superhero that's a female. Well, we had Wonder Woman, but in the Marvel Cinematic Yeah, universe. yeah, and sorry, yes, I should say, in the MCU. It's the yeah. first one. They've done 20 films before, yeah. and this is the first featuring a woman. Um, Black Panther had such a cultural impact because it was the first African-American superhero. This wasn't as good. Won't have quite as much the cultural impact. But I've seen on Twitter, on Facebook, parents who took their daughter to see it and who, who said, how cool was this? You get to see a, a female who kicks ass. And I do think that th that, that, that role that this movie can play for little girls, um, in showing that they can be strong and powerful and, uh, kick men's ass in a couple, couple of cases. I think that's cool. And I think that was the best thing this film did. I did think they laid it on a little thick at times. Like, she's kicking ass while no doubts I'm just a girl yeah. is playing underneath. That felt weird tonally. I agree. I, I'm ready for this big climax and it's like, oh, I'm just a girl. I agree that didn't work. I'm glad they sort of faded it out eventually and just let the, the fight take place. Yeah. I mean, if you want to... I mean, if you have any more positive... Well, I'm just going to... Go on with that yeah. point. Jude Law at the end, he's, he's always challenging her throughout this film. You know, and at the end she gets the upper hand and he just wants to throw the, the light show away as he says and says, prove yourself. And she says, no, I don't have to prove myself to anyone. And I think, you know, that that can compare to females and some of the doubters that they have in the real world. Yeah. You know, the assumption that they need help is is sort of like a you know not real and carol danvers really is just like i don't need your help i don't need anyone to become who i truly can be so i think that's a really cool and important message so i did too. i think they they i agree it's laid on a little bit thick but yeah. th that doesn't change the importance of absolutely it. i agree um but you talk about the tone and uh the tone of the film was one of my biggest issues i felt like it was indecisive at times it didn't know whether it wanted to be serious or it wanted to be funny and we've seen when the space galaxy MCU films like Ragnarok just go full and Guardians just go full blown comedy. It's better. This one I felt like it didn't. It was it wasn't sure what it wanted to do. And I I thought that the the scroll characters and some of the outer space characters it was hokey. I thought that it was just like there were random points where you'd be in the middle of something serious and they would all of a sudden pause for a joke. And there was like comedy that littered in and out, and some of it hit, but there was a lot of it that didn't hit for me. Well, yeah, particularly in the first half of the film, like we get this serious battle, and they go on this mission, and there's all these refugees, and then she gets captured by the uh, the scrolls, and then you, you like see them going through her mind, and there's like all these wisecracks being made, and we find out that Ben Mendelsohn's character, he's he honestly makes most of the wisecracks out of anyone, you know, and it's just it does feel a little bit odd within the construct of the movie um 
of course they within you know just from a story standpoint they pull they pull the old you know we're the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys you know we're oh we're actually on the wrong side of this we saw that coming from a mile away of course even just from watching the trailers i gotta be like or the first time he appears on screen oh well jude law's the bad guy these guys are gonna be the bad guys she's gonna find out she's on the wrong well team. and also there's the background of the mcu guardians of the galaxy we know that kree and ronin who shows up yeah. we know they're bad guys yeah so i don't know if they were trying to like make that a surprise the way that they brought jude law on in her flashback when she treats sees the true story of her flashback it's almost seemed like they were trying to make it a surprise yeah. but like you could see that co- anyone could see that coming from a mile away yeah. It was their attempt, because we're all thinking at one point, like, where's the villain? It was their attempt to try to do something better with the villain. And we've talked about this before. Marvel films that don't get the villain right. It wasn't the worst villain, but it was not good. Yeah. A couple other things. I felt like it was a little bit too convenient at times. You know, the way she actually finds out who she is. You know, she... She figures out the Pegasus project almost immediately by looking at a picture at a wall in the bar. Yeah. You know, and then Theory immediately trusts her. He goes from distrusting her to trusting her just because she's an alien, you know. They go down to the files, covering up, as Nick Fury says, a $15 million mistake. And even though Fury says that, oh, but there's still files there with a convenient picture of the, you know, the person that... I just felt like the movie was a little bit too easy how it came together sometimes. You know, her powers allow for cheating a little bit because she's having these flashbacks... You know, the scrolls are shapeshifters is another way of cheating from a storytelling aspect because characters will reveal things to people they normally wouldn't because they think they're a certain person. These are all just kind of like nitpicky things, but they're sort of like anyone who knows anything about film and screenwriting or whatever. These are ways that you can cheat in storytelling. And I feel like they took every shortcut possible in telling this story. I agree. I think my biggest criticism to one of them, not maybe not my biggest, but what was there ever really? Did you ever feel like anything was really at stake? It felt Stakes like it was very small. It felt like it was a, a foregone conclusion that she was going to, to to win. There was comedy and like lighthearted music during battle scenes, which made gave you the feeling that you know she's going to come out on top, and we kind of know that she's going to anyway. But I just felt like there wasn't that climactic moment where is she going to be pushed to the brink of death or is the world or, you know, well, I don't I, know. I, th- I think that, that, you know, we have Avengers Endgame coming out next yeah. month. This is going to be a continuity. Captain Marvel's going to be in that movie. Well, that was one of my so criticisms, as, as, though, was like, is this just a something to get us to that point? Well, but we've talked about that before where, yeah. where you have to – it's hard to look at these movies as individual Yep. entities because they're part of this larger universe so in, in some way you have to look at them as a whole so maybe they didn't want to have the stakes too big because we know the stakes are going to be huge next month yep. so you know maybe that's part of it but i agree that the stakes didn't feel great i think they wanted this to be a personal story they wanted it to be about carol danvers figuring out who she is and um you know they wanted the main themes to be about people you know they want us to be rooting for the alien family at the end and they want us to trust the relationship between nick fury and brie larson and you know i just think that they they were going for smaller stakes on this i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing yeah i guess it worked hitting this yeah and and not just that you know i I do i think that a lot of it was as you said about empowerment for women Uh, she wasn't the only kick-ass female character um you had marvell 
yeah. who uh, was a kick-ass female character played by Annette Bening, and then you had her friend, who I don't remember her name. Uh, you know, a lot of Maria it, Rambo. A lot of it was Shauna Lynch. Yeah, a lot of it was about strong female performances. And at the end of the day, did I think this was a great film? Um, no. Did I have issues with it at times? Yes. But I do think that there is something to be said about them. You know, about little girls having that that someone to, to say, you know, look at and say, that's awesome, that's my new, you know, they're going to go out and buy the action figure, you know yeah. they're going to. And that's probably the most important thing, because I also felt like the action sequences were lacking a little bit, you know, felt like they were, uh, you know, they're not up to the level that we've seen in Marvel mm -hmm. before, and they felt small stakes, I wrote that down too. Before we give our final thoughts here, we got to talk about the stinger, aka the post credit scene. Um, Carol is here to turn the tide, she, uh, she arrives and sees, you know, the Hulk, Captain America, Black Widow, all in the in the uh, their lab trying to figure out what the hell happened to all their friends. Again, this isn't surprising because we saw Nick Fury call her at the end of uh, Avengers: Infinity War, uh, but it was still pretty damn cool to see her just pop up and suddenly be with these characters we've seen grow yeah. over twenty films. I mean, yeah, and look, what she's basically got a tesseract inside her, right? Yeah. I mean, it's basically so she. Is perhaps the most kick well, ass. The cat. the cat also has a tesseract inside it. Well, that's a, that's another post credit scene that <laughs> yeah. came even later. Um, but but she might be the most kick ass of any of the Avengers, right? And we do learn that you know her nickname when she was a pilot for the Air Force was Avenger. So right. it was a little cool to see kind of the backstory and where we got to, and now she's with them twenty some years later. Right. That and Nick Fury, how he lost his eye, were sort of the two sort of <laughs> yeah. homages. Or in the beginning when he keeps talking about how he can't unsee that. I can't unsee what I just saw. Well, you're going to unsee it with one eye. So yeah, yeah. I thought those were kind of funny. So yeah. some homages that we got. There wasn't quite as many who clues or winks or hints as to Avengers as I thought, but I guess that makes sense because it took place exactly. way early. So yeah. um, overall, I, I liked the movie. It's it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We have a high bar here. The themes and the, the representation that we haven't seen before, that's going to trump everything. I did think it was lacking in some some of the action scenes. Tonally, it was a little bit off. Um, so, it's not my favorite. I liked Brie Larson in the role, though. I liked seeing a young Nick Fury. Um, so, for that reason, I, I gave it a 6 out of 10. Um, so, a little bit lower than I normally give Marvel films, but something I'd still recommend people to see. Yeah, I ended up giving it a 7, and I was between a 6 and a 7. And I did give it a 7 because I think there is... A cultural impact that you and I might not understand. You know, maybe if we had daughters, we would recognize that. It's not always a great reason to rate a movie higher, but I do think that there's a little more meaning behind this, and there's more significance here uh, because of you know what it means to have a female superhero. I think that it carries a little more weight. Um, so I ended up giving it a seven, but um, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I wouldn't put it on the level of Hulk or the first couple Thors. It's not down there for me, but it's certainly not even in the upper half, I don't think. It's probably in the bottom half. Yeah, I, I, it's probably firmly in the middle, somewhere in the bottom. Yeah. But middle bottom for me. Yeah, so. me too. But again, that's a very high bar. So. Sure. Anyways, that's Captain Marvel. Go check it out. It'll be a good primer for Avengers Endgame coming out next month. Anyways, that's all we got for you here today on the... Uh, March 27th episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. I don't think I ever... Did I ever say it was March 27th? Hey, it's March 27th. So uh, um, that's what we got for you. We appreciate you listening along. 
uh, as always. Uh, like I said, I'm getting married uh, in less than a month's time, so I'm going to be very busy. Uh, yeah. And I will be going on a honeymoon to Italy after that, so maybe uh, some sporadic pods until we get to, you know, May, honestly. We'll try and maybe get one more in before I take off and do that. So, um, but we'll, we'll be back at it for the busy yeah. summer season. We'll definitely still put out pods. Um, and we, as always, really appreciate you listening to us. Give us a like on Facebook. Listen to old episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Just search Second Day Film Podcast on social media. And until next time, we'll see you at the movies.